Our passage this morning is from Matthew 21, verse 1 to 17. Matthew 21, verse 1 to 17. And if you are new and want to follow along, the Bibles are in the pews in front of you. And that's page 988 of your pew Bibles. 988. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there and her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him and the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants? You have ordained praise. And he left them. I went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Let's pray for Clive as he comes to expound a bit of that passage for us this morning. Father, we pray that as we, as we learn more about this text, as Clive brings the, the word that you've placed in his heart, that this won't just be a talk for the sake of a talk, but this will be an event in which we hear your heart and know what it is you want to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We need to uh, continue to pray for this friend of mine, this fellow Pastor Ross, who I love dearly because it's not easy to be a young guy and get rejected by three ladies in one morning. That is really tough. That is really, really hard. And, And there's a bit of me that I was really pleased he was dedicating those beautiful children, not me, because it's part of the the job of a pastor. You never know which way it's going to go. You know, I've been cried on. Uh, I've been rejected. I've even been something else on, but we won't go there. Um, The fact is, it's a tremendous joy to dedicate children and to see the the sense of expectancy in their little faces and the expectancy of those who love them. And we're in a series here, for those of you who are here today for the first time, 
on what we're calling the seven faces of Easter. And you'll see the image behind me. It's the image on these little flyers. We've looked at the face of anguish, the face of shock, the face of ambition, the face of betrayal. And today, at the beginning, in a sense, of what's known as Holy Week, we come to the face of expectancy. And what we're looking at, basically, is the emotional expressions of Easter in the faces of the characters in this amazing, wonderful Easter story. Now, I had a face of expectancy at about 11.30 at night on a very cold, very lonely Plymouth station. I went there last Monday night, 11.30, to greet my wife Marilyn, who I love, on the train. She'd been for three weeks in Australia visiting family that we have there. It was her idea, by the way, that she get the first-class train on amazing Yorkshire woman mega deal tickets rather than me pick her up at the airport. So that's why that happened. But I stood there as Billy No Wife for a while with this face of expectancy as the train arrived because after 38 years we're still deeply in love. That's a cue for you to go, oh, oh. It is amazing. Um, there must be a God because Marilyn's put up with me for 38 years. There you go. So I want to think about this sense of expectancy as we look at the crowd that greets Jesus on Palm Sunday. It's Palm Sunday today. And in any crowd, take a modern crowd, you're going to have faces of excitement there. So as we look at the Easter story this Palm Sunday, imagine what was going on in the lives and in the facial reactions of the the huge crowd. Because in verse 8 it said it was a very large crowd. There's going to be children there's going to be excited people. Why? Well, if you were to go beyond the beginning of the reading that Ross brought, you'd see that Jesus had just healed two blind men. They were at the side of the road saying, Son of David, Son of David. So they're giving him this important title we'll talk more about. And he says, what do you want me to do? The crowd tried to rebuke them, but he said, no, what do you want me to do for you? We want our sight. And he healed them. So they get up, and all the crowd that were there, and this huge crowd is now coming into Jerusalem, and it's at a time of incredible excitement because it's near the Passover. The Passover feast celebrated every year since it had happened, remembered the time when the blood of a sacrificial lamb was spread on the lintels and doorposts of the house of every Israelite slave family that were in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. And you know the story of them coming out of Egypt and going across the Red Sea. The angel of death had passed over their homes because of the blood of the sacrificial lamb. All of that pointed forward to the one who was going to be the sacrificial lamb, Jesus. But the people hadn't heard any prophecies for hundreds of years since the end of the Old Testament when a prophet Malachi said, wait for the great day of the Lord and one will come like Elijah, who will announce the great day of the Lord. And they'd known about John the Baptist baptizing people for repentance of their sins, people who knew that they'd done wrong stuff, and many were going to John the Baptist to be baptized. But he pointed away from himself as a prophet, the first prophet for hundreds of years, and said, one is coming after me whose sandals I'm not even fit to tie up or untie. I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And they wondered what on earth that might mean, but they're beginning to think that actually the Messiah was going to come. And the fact that Jesus comes on a donkey, as you'll see, is massively significant. What they didn't expect, that he goes to the temple and he overturns the tables. 
And he says, look, this is a court of the Gentiles. You money changers are robbing people. You're ripping people off. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, including Gentiles. You've turned it into a den of robbers. What are you doing? And this loving, incredibly special human being who'd healed the sick, raised the dead, people are beginning to understand he's much more than human. He purifies the temple. So this is all kind of background to this phenomenal phenomenal experience on what we call now Palm Sunday, the first Palm Sunday. And the face of expectancy is one of the many faces of the faces in the crowd in this reading. It's as if the whole of history is moving to a focal point. Because the cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus, points back towards the whole of history so far. And actually the point of the cross, the death And then the resurrection of Jesus three days later points to the whole of history in the future. And history can only be fully understood looking back at the cross. If any of you have ever had the privilege of going to the amazing remains of the Colosseum in Rome, in the city of Rome, as you look at it and imagine how magnificent it was, but it's in ruins, if you get up to the highest point, as I did when I had the privilege of going, you look down and you see what looks a small, but it's not, it's huge, wooden cross, an empty wooden cross. The Roman Empire was one of the greatest empires that had ever been, but Jesus steps into history and steps into humanity and becomes human, and we're moving now in this Easter drama to the focal point of the whole of history. It's powerful stuff. I want to suggest there are at least three types of faces in the crowd. There's a face of expectancy, of course, which would be a face of delight in some. But for others, it would be a face of cynicism. And for some people, it would be a face of hope. So we're going to look at those three facial expressions that might be there. First of all, the face of delight. Now, for those of you who haven't been here... Psychologists and sociologists have worked out that there are at least six clearly identifiable common facial expressions across the whole of humanity, whatever your ethnic background, whatever your culture, whatever your nation, whatever your tribe, whatever your tongue, there are six. And one of them is happiness, joy, or delight. Now, I'm going to help you out here because for some of you, it might be a struggle. But if you turn the corners of your mouth up, and you open your eyes really wide, and you raise your eyebrows, that will put on your face something called a smile. Now, most of you use it all the time. Some of you, maybe it's a good idea for you to give it a go this morning. Okay? So would you just raise your eyebrows, open your eyes wide, turn your mouth up at the corners, and give that expression of delight, joy, and happiness to the person either side of you. Let's try it. That's good, isn't it? That's great. Okay, that's enough. You're in church. Not supposed to enjoy yourself in church. Joking. Let me tell you, my my background is um, in zoology. I'm trying to keep it quiet because there's a little boy this big. And I said, oh, I love your dinosaur. It's a Tyrannosaurus rex, isn't it? And he went, no, it's a Velociraptor. I've got a degree in zoology and a three-year-old puts me right. But I'll tell you as someone of scientific background this, that when you do that facial expression, it releases something called endorphins, like happy drugs in your brain get released. So just one more time, give that expression to the person either side of you. 
and feel the endorphin rush. Go, feel it go. It's cool. You all feel better now, don't you? Okay. You see, the face of delight for some was the face of expectancy, of joy and deep delight. Listen to verses 8 and 9 of my reading here. It says, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna! Now this word's really important. It's come to be a cry of praise, but it means save, like save us God. Oh God, save us. You probably sometimes done that you've probably at least gone oh god that's in a sense what you're doing this has become a cry of praise hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest and when jesus entered jerusalem the whole city was stirred and asked who is this let me tell you that's the best question any human being can ever ask who is this Many of you here know that until the age of 32, I was an atheist, scientific atheist. We didn't need a God. There's no need for God. I dismissed God. I was fascinated by Jesus when I was like that little three-year-old and maybe up until the age of about 10. Wasn't raised in a Christian home, but as many people in my generation several light years ago, um, I was sent to Sunday school and I was fascinated by Jesus. But by the time I get to university, I've put the last nail in the coffin of any possibility that there's a God. There's no God, according to me. I hope that people later don't go on the internet and just hear that little bit from a minister. That would be really difficult, wouldn't it? The fact is, at the age of 32, out of nowhere, I have this encounter with Jesus Christ. I didn't see him, but I knew he was as real as you are real to me now. And it completely turned my life around. I used to be one of those guys who would uh, stand at the rugby club bar after my uh, career had finished uh, with, uh, with my tankard and say, oh, the first 15 are not playing the way we used to play when I was captain. You know those kind of boring uh, types in rugby club bars that uh, basically that's the way they are. You, you kind of met them. I used to say that I'm going to travel a bit and I'm going to do some extra study because I love study. That's what I'm going to do when I get older. But the truth is, I was just heading down the blind alley of just being at that rugby club bar every weekend and going nowhere. By the grace of God, since meeting Jesus Christ, I've had the privilege of talking about Jesus in 13 different countries on five continents. And by His grace, my, my parenting, my marriage, my friendships, my life has been completely transformed by someone who's real. Because although I wasn't asking the question, who is this, I had a full-on encounter with Jesus Christ. Amazing. Listen to Mark chapter 11 and verses 8 to 10. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches, palm branches, so that's why we call it Palm Sunday, that they'd cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, remember that means saved, blessed who comes, he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. There's so much background to this. The background is they expected a Messiah. That's why the expectancy and the delight. They think this is a Messiah. He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. Maybe he's the one that was promised. And he will set them free from some of the worst things in their life. That's what they believe. This king that is coming will restore Israel to all that it should be. Now they know the Messiah is of the line of David. So they're saying Hosanna to the son of David. And they're singing something called the Hallel. 
Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 is the Hallel Psalms that were sang at great festivals. And people are hearing their thousands for this Passover festival. And then this one, they're expecting the Messiah. And this one comes who heals the sick with joy and deep delight. They think this might be the one. I mean, they've probably only got one or two cloaks or tunics to their name in those days. Most of them were not wealthy. Imagine taking your best jacket or your coat off and laying it on the road so that a couple of donkeys and a crowd of disciples and Jesus on the donkey could could trample all over that. Imagine that. It's incredible, isn't it? Just imagine doing that with your best piece of clothing kit. But there's something else going on here. There had been a time where someone called Judas Maccabeus had come into Jerusalem to declare victory over a dreadful, despotic Greek warrior king called Antiochus Epiphanes, who had actually taken a pig and sacrificed it in the temple and offered up swine flesh. This is anathema to Jews. A pig was an unclean animal. And, and they'd offered, he'd offered this up to Zeus on the high altar in the Jewish temple. He turned many of the rooms in the temple into brothels where prostitutes were. And when Judas Maccabeus in the Maccabean uprising had defeated him, he rode in through that same gate into Jerusalem to bring deliverance to the people. And in 164 BC, three years after he did that, the dedicated temple was purified and absolutely set apart again. All this history is in their mind. It's resonating in their thinking. They're thinking Jesus is coming. Why? The faces of the people showed it. They're expecting a coming Messiah who desired the ending of Roman oppression. Imagine if somebody could just tell you, just come up to you in the street and say, hey, take this, and they give you a field pack full of gear that weighs a ton. Well, not quite, but it weighs a lot. And they say, get that on your back. You're going to carry that for me a mile. A Roman soldier had the right to say that to a Jew. And Jesus goes the extra mile and he says, if they ask you to do it for a mile, take it the extra mile. That's where we get our common English expression that someone who works hard goes the extra mile. That someone who does you a favor has gone the extra mile. It comes straight out of here. These Romans could tax them in a sense whatever they wanted. They could crucify them. The women were raped. Children were abused. Terrible things happened because of this powerful, powerful empire. And so they wanted Jesus to be the one who'd come, in a sense, to deliver them the Messiah, which means, by the way, Christ, which means anointed one. This anointed one would come from God and set them free. And that's exactly, in a sense, why Jesus did come. Jesus came to set them free from religious oppression. I don't know what you think, and I hate making political statements as a pastor. I don't ever want you to know which way I vote, because I don't want to skew it. It's between you and God, how you vote. But I want to tell you this much. I've got a bit of a problem with a guy who calls himself a Bible-believing Christian called Donald Trump in terms of the way he is. Anyone with me? I mean, Trump is a word that in Yorkshire is used as a polite version of another word that begins with F, ends in T, and has A and R in the middle. And I think I will say it, it's very appropriate. Heaven forbid that he's got his finger on the button. So that's one of the few political statements you'll ever hear me make. If you're American and you're going to vote, please don't vote Trump. Okay? 
The people are expecting someone to set them free from oppression. Oppressive politics is wrong and we need to stand up against it wherever it shows its head. But Jesus is more concerned by the oppression that the so-called religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, lay upon the people. He says you put a heavy load upon their back, you're not willing to let them carry it. Law-keeping, rules and rituals and religion is not religion with Jesus, it's relationship. Are you with me? Religion's ugly. Yes, it can cause wars, and it does. But a relationship with the creator of the universe, who calls himself friend and loves you so much that he lays his life down for you because God is holy, and he wants to deal with all the barriers that get between you and a relationship with God, that's someone that I can put my trust in. Jesus comes to judge the temple. He overturns the tables. But he comes to set people free, like those blind men that he set free. Like the people who are set free from spiritual oppression. You know, I told you that I'm a a scientist by background. I was a scientific atheist. My master's degree was in the study of deliverance from evil spirits. And the first thing I had to do for the University of Wales is establish that I wasn't a lunatic for even believing that such a thing as evil spirits exist. Trust me, they exist. And Jesus set people free from them in a word. Oppression comes in different ways. There's no wonder there was this face of delight, but it still wasn't what they expected in their expectancy. So the second face that we look at is the face of cynicism. I hope you like the guy behind me. That's a fairly cynical expression. You see, if we read verses 14 and 15 of the reading that Ross brought for us, we find that the blind and the lame came to Jesus at the temple and he healed them. It just says it as simply as that. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the religious right wing, saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, because the children had faces of expectancy. They thought this was the Messiah. Mum and dad had told them. These chief priests and Pharisees were indignant. Said to Jesus, shut these kids up. All right, it's not what it says in the Bible, but it's it's the same. Shut these little kids up. Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said, yeah. And elsewhere he says, listen, if they're silent, even the stones will cry out. God has ordained worship from the mouths of babes and children. So the face of cynicism in the cowed is a face of rejection which would plot evil and murder. Just listen to verses 45 of the same chapter and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him. But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Uh, Let me just speak to this. Jesus was absolutely a prophet, not a doubt about that. But he was much more than a prophet. He was a priest who came to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. And he did that by dying on a cross, as you'll see. But he's more than a prophet and he's more than a priest. He's a king. And the Bible says he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. And that he's coming back. Now, if 300 prophecies have been fulfilled about his birth, his death, and his resurrection, and there are about 320-some prophecies of the Messiah, and 20 of them aren't fulfilled, you might say, ah, well, it's not perfect then, is it? It's only 300 out of about 320. Yeah, but the other 20 are about the fact Jesus is coming back again. And it's quite clear out of the mouths of angels that said to the disciples, why are you 
while you're waiting for Jesus, as they looked at him ascending in the clouds, he's going to come back the way that he went. And the Bible says that when he comes back, every eye will see him. How could the Bible possibly know that when something with a a global impact happens now on our phones, on our iPads, on our laptops, on our satellite television, it will be networked around the world in an instant. Anyone remember the Twin Towers? Anyone like me remember watching one tower burning and then could not believe my eyes as a second plane hits a second tower? Remember? Because someone said, get to your television. When Jesus comes back, every eye will see. I've been in Africa, in the poorest villages. They still have mobile phones. It's amazing. The big, big question here is in verses 10 to 11 of of our reading. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. He couldn't have been only a prophet. Why? Because a true prophet would point to the true God. A true prophet would never allow anyone to worship him. And yet when Thomas, doubting Thomas, has said, I I, I know you sell me, you've seen the risen Christ. I'm not going to believe that Jesus is alive until I can put my hands into the nail marks, my hands into the nail marks in his hands and in his side. And then later on, Jesus appears. And from everything we understand, Thomas just worships him and says, My Lord and my God. Who is this? This isn't just a Messiah. This is God in the flesh. This is the Son of God. This is the one who, as a 32-year-old atheist, I encountered and later on, on my face, in tears before him, knew that he was calling me to spend the rest of my life as humbly as I could and with as much gentleness and respect to tell as many people as I could that that there's a God who loves them. Not a God who wants to squat them, swat them like a fly, crush them under his foot, but a God who opened his arms on the cross and took nails there out of love for every man and woman, whatever they had done in their lives. This is what's called the good news, the gospel. Who is this Jesus? And the tragedy is that some of those religious leaders and many others in the crowd who had these cynical faces, they didn't believe him. If I read to you from Luke 19, verse 37, listen to this. When Jesus came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He says, I tell you, if I keep quiet, the stones will cry out. But as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Can anyone tell me the shortest verse in the Bible, in the English translation? It's just two words, and the first one is Jesus. Jesus wept. He weeps at the tomb of Lazarus, one of his closest friends who has died. And he weeps because Lazarus is dead. He's been in that tomb over three days. And he weeps despite the fact that in a moment he's going to say, Lazarus, come out and a dead man will come back to life. Why does he weep? Jesus wept, shot his first. I'll tell you why he weeps. 
Same reason he weeps over Jerusalem, because God's desire is to love every human being of whatever background, of whatever ethnicity, because he made them. And until they come home to him, it's like a hole missing in his heart. So he weeps over Jerusalem and he weeps at the tomb of Lazarus because of what sin and Satan and the world has done to drive a wedge right between the the loving Father who made us and us in relationship. It's tragic, isn't it? And as he wept over Jerusalem, he said, if you even you would know this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you. And he starts to prophesy about the Roman emperor Titus who's going to sack Jerusalem in AD 70. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. Why? Jesus adds, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Do you? Whatever you're here for today, whether you've been here 20 years, or it's the first time you've ever been here, or you've been coming a few weeks, there is a God who loves you this much. He showed it on a simple wooden cross. We will remember that on Good Friday in a deeply devotional, powerful, creative service at 10 o'clock be here. Then just days later on Easter Sunday, we will remember why we have an empty cross. It's to remind us that death couldn't hold Jesus, that he was resurrected, that he left the tomb empty. And because of that, we have phenomenal hope. Anyone who recognizes the time of God's coming to them has this phenomenal hope. And that takes me to the third and final face. We've looked at the face of expectancy, the face in a sense of excitement. We've looked at the face of delight. And we've looked at the face of cynicism. Perhaps the most beautiful expression in that crowd will be the the face of hope. How many of you have got children? How many of you have got grandchildren? Okay. I guess you've got both. If you've got grandchildren, you've almost certainly got children, though as a grandparent, uh, I love my grandkids. I I can't understand why I didn't just do it that way first. It would have been wonderful, you know. (laughs) Miss the kids out, go straight for grandkids. Now, I don't mean that. I love all my children and my grandchildren. But I've experienced enough as both a father and a grandfather to know and recognize in the face of a child on Christmas Eve and on Easter Sunday morning, expectancy. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because at Christmas Eve, the children are thinking, oh, how wonderful, tomorrow I can celebrate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. (laughs) And I know that on Easter Sunday morning, they're thinking, oh, how wonderful, we can go to church in a little while and celebrate the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or is it Christmas Eve? Santa's coming soon. (laughs) Is it Christmas morning? I get the chocolate egg after church, you know. Whatever it is, we recognize the face of expectancy and the face of hope in a child. And Jesus said, you'll never come into the kingdom of heaven unless you come like a little child. The expectant faces daring to hope that the one who was promised was entering Jerusalem were certainly the faces not only of children but all in that crowd who thought, This must be the Christ, the Messiah, which means the anointed one in English. It has to be him to such an extent that in verses 4 and 5, we hear these wonderful things. 
This took place to fill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a coat, the fall of a donkey. This is the direct fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, one of the Old Testament prophets, who shows that the one who's coming, the, the Messiah, the expected one, is going to come riding on a donkey. And Jesus had either by divine providence or by arranging it, determined that he would come into Jerusalem on a donkey, the colt of a donkey. Intentionally showing the people that he is indeed who they hope he is, who they want him to be, who they expect him to be. The claim of the people shouting Hosanna to the son of David is, this has got to be the one Zechariah spoke about. And they found a hope in some cases in Jesus, even though he was crucified days later. Some of the people who'd shouted Hosanna were the same people who in the court of Pilate, when he offers them Jesus to set free, or Barabbas, they choose Barabbas, the common thief. I, I will just read what happened in Pilate's quarters with Jesus because it's important and significant Pilate goes back inside the palace. He summons Jesus and he asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the one they're expecting, the Messiah, the Christ? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? He's in front of the most powerful man in the whole of Judea, whole of Jerusalem, a governor in the Roman Empire. Is that your idea? Did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me, those cynics in the crowd. What is it that you've done? Jesus doesn't answer directly. He says this, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is within you. You see the kingdom of God when you see somebody feeding a refugee whose child has been drowned in a jungle camp in Calais. You see the kingdom of God when you see somebody who is blind, like one of the ladies of this church, getting someone else to take her to do pastoral visits to people who she feels are less fortunate than her. You see the kingdom of God when a wife forgives a husband who's been unfaithful to her and he repents and tries to live the way he always wanted to live. You see the kingdom of God in a little child when they just trust and have faith. You see the kingdom of God when the sick are healed and the dead are raised and the blind have their eyes open and you see the kingdom of God coming when someone who was dead for the best part of three days is alive again my kingdom's not of this world if it were my servants would fight to prevent my arrest but my kingdom's from another place oh you are a king then said Pilate Jesus answered you are right in saying I'm a king in fact for this reason I was born for this I came into the world to testify to the truth Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate says, what is truth? And the Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Truth was looking Pilate right in the face. Here's the truth. To choose to follow Jesus is the best decision you could ever make in your life. 
But I remember in my hometown of Scarborough in Yorkshire, I remember at the Scarborough Fair, have you heard of Scarborough Fair? Simon and Garfunkel made famous an old folk song, Are You Going to Scarborough Fair? Scarborough Fair is an annual celebration. It still has a procession. I was a captain of Scarborough Rugby Club, and uh, as you know, you've heard, an atheist to the age of 32. When I became a Christian, I, I, I wanted to join f- people from church in marching with the Christians as part of that procession to give out little leaflets and gifts to people and sing Christian songs. But I had a problem. People would see me. They'd see me marching. So when we got to the big car park and all the happy, clappy, holy Joes were over there and I wasn't quite sure that I was really one of them yet. So I wandered over to the other stand, uh, the other truck that was going on the procession, which was the Licensed Victuallers Association. Know what they are? They're the ones that own pubs. My brother still has a pub in Scarborough. I was raised in a pub. I could pull a pint when I was seven years old. Had a head on it that big. And I went over there and I saw the president of the Licensed Victuallers Association, who's also the president of the rugby club, Brian, a friend of mine, a great guy, dressed as a monk, which seemed a little bit incongruous. And he said, Clive, are you coming with us? And I said, no. He said, well, what are you doing here today then? Why aren't you in the the crowd waiting for the procession? And that was my moment of truth, wasn't it? I said, I'm with them. And he went, yeah, right. And I went, no, I am Brian. He went, oh, all right, whatever, yeah, that's fine. No problem. Do you want a beer then? I said, no, I'm okay. Everything in me wanted a beer at that moment, I can tell you. When I got back with my group of Christian brothers and sisters from the different churches in the town, we turned the corner out of the car park. We were one of the first people to go singing our Christian songs. I had a handful of leaflets, and the first face I saw in the crowd was a face of cynicism. He's one of the best rugby players that had ever played rugby for Scarborough. He just looked at me and went, what the beep, beep, beep are you doing with them? And in that moment, I thought, is that as hard as it's going to get? In that moment, inwardly, I said, Jesus, I am so sorry. Is that what I'm scared of? And I went and I gave Martin one of the leaflets and a gift and said, see you at the club next week, buddy. Because if the worst thing that I'm going to face, and some people, some Christians will face much more, but if the worst thing that I was going to face was a sneer of criticism and cynicism, when Jesus did all that for me, and I get to live forever, and have a friendship with the creator of the universe in this life, that's the least that I could do. I need to close by just reading one more verse of scripture to you. Thank you so much for being so patient and listening particularly those of you who come for the dedication. You know, you're going to have a great party later. You came joyfully to the dedication. Nobody told you that this big daft Yorkshireman was going to speak for about half an hour. So thanks for your patience. But if you're not used to church, what you hear might change your eternal destiny forever. Peter, who denied Jesus in the Easter story and wept bitterly when he had, And after the resurrection was beautifully restored, Peter wrote this in his first letter, his first epistle. In the first chapter and the third verse, he wrote, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I have a living hope. Not a dead saviour in a dead church with some dead, irrelevant religion. I have a living hope. And I want to commend with humility and respect to everyone who's gathered here that living hope to you. Not words on a page, not a religious code of ethics, but a relationship with the one who loved you so much that he died on a cross. And someone who can be so trusted because he told the disciples, but they didn't get it time after time. They're going to kill me, but I'll be back alive. I'm going to be resurrected. And who on one occasion appeared to over 500 people at the same time. And more than this, he loves you passionately everyone on the balcony every one of those children and young people down there every single person in the pews here he loves every single one of you let's pray let's just be quiet before God Amazing thing about God is He knows what's going on in every single heart right now. And I know for some of you, what you've heard is a bridge too far. It certainly would have been for me until that encounter with Jesus at the age of 32. So I'm going to pray a very simple prayer. I'm not going to ask anyone for any kind of visible response whatsoever. Father, you know every man, every woman here. You know how many hairs there are upon our head, according to the Bible, Lord. It also says in Holy Scripture, there's not a sparrow that falls from the air without you seeing it, and that we are worth more than many sparrows. And Father, you so love this world that you sent your one and only Son, Jesus, into this world, that whoever, whoever believes in him, will not perish but have eternal life. And not just life beyond this life, but a, a quality of life in this life before we ever taste physical death that will be in technicolor as opposed to monochrome. Jesus said he came that we would have life in all its fullness, Father. And I want to pray for those now who do not know that life because they do not yet know that Lord and Savior and friend and master that you might open our eyes to see him. I pray, Father, at the very least there might be some who leave here today and they carry away with them the question, who is this? Who is this Jesus? And they do whatever it takes to with integrity in their own thinking and without pressure from anyone, me included, they do everything they can to come up with their answer to that question, who is this Jesus? Bless every man and woman here and every child and young person in these buildings. Not just the beautiful children we've dedicated, but every single one of us, Father. And hear these prayers, please, Father God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Amen.